Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. We're so excited to have many new listeners with us today. And before we kind of jump in to talk about one of Sarah's favorite topics. (laughs) Totally my favorite topic, yes. We are, just kind of briefly introduce ourselves. I am Stacey Toth. I had a 20-year career in federal regulation and law. Literally the most uh, boring thing. And I try to not talk about it because it's just awful. Um, (laughs) But I had a life-changing experience discovering what I put in and on my body was affecting my health. And so now I'm my own boss and leading a large team of mostly women focused on getting safer non-toxic living products into the hands of everyone. And I podcast with you, Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, every <laughs> week. <laughs> yeah. So um, to, to introduce myself briefly to our new listeners, um, I have a medical research background. I have a PhD in medical biophysics. And I actually had sort of a similar trans- translational type experience where um, I was really struggling with my um, academic research career um, with so many different health conditions. I had uh, over a dozen diagnosed health conditions. And in the process of sort of trying to navigate my life, I discovered that uh it's weird that actually the food that we eat would actually have an impact on how our bodies work, but it, it truly does, um, as well as lifestyle choices. And that ended up, you know, really creating a new pathway forward for me where now I am uh, an author, a blogger, a health educator. I really, in many ways, consider myself a science translator. So I, I think of my role as one where I can dig deep into the literature and and be like a, a bridge between the academic research community that I used to belong to and the people who can benefit from the, you know, actionable information that comes out of their research. And that's not a a role that is officially filled by any kind of institution. And so I, I find myself sort of seeing the need for um, that type of um, that type of communication where we can say, look, like there's just so many just fascinating things being discovered every day uh, from academic researchers that can take five, 10, 20 years before our doctors learn about it and then it gets you know explained to us. So I'm trying to fast track it and go directly to the person who can benefit for that from that information. Absolutely. And I think what has been really um, beneficial for us as we've dived deep into the science on a lot of this is looking at um, the specific nutrients within food and how they affect our bodies. And even in varieties of forms, cooked foods, not cooked foods, all that kind of stuff. And so while we get super deep into the weeds, um, we also realize we haven't kind of taken a high level view and given a big picture look at why when we talk about nutrients specifically, or as we often use the term nutrivore, what that means from a whole health perspective. So we're kind of 
bringing it up a bit today so that there's context for all the individual detailed science shows that we have done and will do in the future. <laughs> yeah, I think we've been throwing this term around Nutrivore um, pretty excessively <laughs> lately. And I think that, you know, that that sort of 20, 30,000 foot view is really important, even for our regular listeners who who love when we get into the weeds on these really detailed, like this one specific form of this one nutrient, and we do an entire, you know, show just dedicated to, you know, all the ins and outs of that topic. Um, I think it's really helpful to sort of center or ground ourselves in understanding what what is the what is the ultimate goal here. And that means, you know, really getting away from um, diet jargon. This would be a fantastic episode to share with your friends and family who have been sort of inundated with all the different, right? Um, you know, the all there's so many different fad diet approaches out there right now that it can be next to impossible to separate out what is. Um, an influencer making uh, commissions off of selling a supplement line um, and sort of uh, sort of almost like predatory marketing level versus something that is uh, rooted in, you know, maybe a little bit of science, but is being misinterpreted versus, you know, where we like to try to stay as best we can, which is to stay very evidence-based um, and really looking at the big picture, what does the, what does, what is the entire field of scientific evidence on this topic showing um, as a whole? What is the consensus view from all of those different scientific research papers? And where is there contradiction that might indicate, you know, nuance and context that's really interesting to dig into, but really staying um, based in uh, fact and human knowledge. I think what is especially um, something I'm mindful of this time of year, but all the times of the year, is this mindset of, like you said, diet. And for me, it was a huge mental shift when I started focusing on the outcome being health, right? Like mm -hmm. diet is a word that can be used to sell you a weight loss product that actually depletes your body of nutrients, or it could be referring to how you eat. Um, and so instead of using a term that could be that way, it's easier for me to think of nutrient density as being a way to achieve the ultimate goal, which is health, right? The justification yeah. for all the things that we do are all around this idea of health and wellness. And so, um, as confusing as that is, though, because of the marketing terms and all that that we're in, I think one of the things that people um, get askew is the idea of nutrients because there's macronutrients and then there's mm -hmm. micronutrients and they are entirely um, two different things. And when we use the word nutrient, are we referring to you know, how many carbs you eat? Or are we referring to the essential vitamins and minerals that your body needs to function properly? So maybe we can just kind of like, start with the very, very basics on <laughs> what do we mean by nutrient? And it's important to understand the context that 
ultimately everything that we're going to talk about on every show is this idea of ideal wellness of health. And that could be, it looks different every time we talk about it, right? But our goal is never to um, shame or to give guilt to decisions that may have been made in the past or what you might make a choice to eat in the future that doesn't necessarily align with perfection. That's not what we're here to do. No one is perfect and no one ever will be perfect, but we can make choices if we know what health looks like, that the more choices we make towards that goal, the better off we'll be. So, <laughs> dink it away, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's start with um, you know just a, a really brief understanding of what a nutrient actually is. Um, Stacy mentioned macronutrients; those are protein, carbs, and fats, um, and they basically amount to energy. So they're supplying our body with the energy that is required for chemical reactions to occur. Micronutrients are things like. Uh, amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins and vitamin-like compounds, like CoQ10 is a vitamin-like compound. It's not technically a vitamin. Um, Minerals and phytonutrients are all micronutrients. Um, These are the building blocks of cellular structures, and they're also the resources that are needed for all of those chemical reactions. And the reason why they're called macro and micro has to do with the volume of it that we actually need to consume. So we need large amounts of energy to drive all of these chemical reactions, and we need smaller amounts of building blocks and resources for the chemical reactions. So that's that's where they get their names from. They're all small molecules. Um, so when we consume a you know protein, our bodies digest that down into mostly individual amino acids before it's absorbed. But the protein itself is a macronutrient. The essential amino acids are micronutrients. And it really just has to do with, again, that macro refers to the fact that we need lots of it. And the micro refers to the fact that we don't need as much, but they're, they're still essential. So we still need all of these building blocks, all of these resources and the energy to drive the chemical reactions and um, without sufficient amounts of any of those nutrients, macro or micro, um, basically our cells stop being able to, to do their jobs. And so I think it's really helpful to talk about maybe some examples of a biological system in the human body and how it uses nutrients to, to either sort of maintain the, the health of its sort of cellular constituents or to drive chemical reactions to drive its function in some way, um, to show how these nutrients are being used up. Because when you understand that um, these nutrients are being used up in chemical reactions, it becomes really easy to understand why we need to like constantly replenish our nutrient stores by consuming foods that contain those nutrients every single day. Totally makes sense. And I think for me, it's been... um Interesting to think about it from the context of essential versus non-essential nutrients because like you you mentioned that a couple of times and we hear often and we look at food labels like these are your essential vitamins, right? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it would be helpful to walk through what some of those are and why, right? Like why is 
some of those nutrients what our different systems need. Yeah. So, you know, the the label of essential and non-essential is very interesting. The label of essential, we have a whole collection of basically all of the vitamins, right? All of the the, if you took a multivitamin and if you looked at the label, basically just about everything on that label would be labeled as an essential nutrient. That's all your B vitamins, vitamin A, uh, C, D, E, K, um, most of your minerals, right? So we were thinking like calcium, potassium, magnesium, iron, zinc, um, sulfur. Um, there's uh, nine different amino acids that are labeled as essential. And basically, anything that's labeled as essential has two things in common. One is we know that our bodies can't make it um, so or can't make anywhere near enough to fulfill our need for that nutrient. So we must necessarily get it from food. That's one thing that goes into the label of essential. The other thing that goes into the label of essential is an identified disease of inadequacy or deficiency. So for example, rickets is caused by vitamin D deficiency or scurvy is caused by vitamin C deficiency. So we have a, uh, you know, a condition that we can say, when you don't have this, these are the symptoms. And not every nutritional deficiency disease, some of them are so rare, they don't necessarily have an exact um, name, but there'll still be a sort of an understanding of what happens. Some of them we only really even see in the context of certain genetic disorders. Um, but certainly, right, the the study of nutrition actually started with trying to understand these diseases of malnutrition and, and identify, you know, some of the earliest um, so, sort of cures for these diseases. So like anemia, which is iron deficiency, one of the earliest cures for anemia was to stir iron filings into a glass of hot red wine and serve that to the anemic person, um, which is not how I would go about addressing anemia today. But it actually is a really interesting sort of example of showing um, sort of the pathway to understanding nutrients. Non-essential nutrients Either we can make them, um, given th that we're getting adequate other things that go into, again, now, now we're requiring an additional chemical reaction to make that nutrient. So that's, for example, true of the other 11 non-essential amino acids. It's far better to get them from food because it's hard for our body to keep up if we're really not getting any, but we can make our own if in a dire situation where we need to. Um, but some nutrients are labeled as non-essential because there's not ever been a deficiency disease sort of identified. One of those is fiber. And I think that that's really a misnomer. So fiber and phytonutrients, phytonutrients is this broad class of over 10,000 different molecules that we get from plant foods that in the plants, they, they serve these really important sort of like antioxidant functions. And in our bodies, they do the same thing. They can be anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. Many of them have properties that prevent cancer or protect the heart from heart damage, from heart disease, or protect the liver from damage. Um, they're really, you know, super beneficial, but it's really hard to measure deficiency because if you consume any kind of plant food whatsoever, you're getting some. So we don't really have examples of what happens if you don't consume any. Um, but we do know that the more you consume, the lower your risk of chronic illness. So we've got this like group of nutrients that are labeled as non-essential. And I, I worry that calling them non-essential makes them sound optional, which they're not. 
Um, so it's basically what we're saying with the word non-essential is you won't die without them. But that's very different than saying you'll be healthy without them because we know that's not true. We know that fiber and phytonutrients as really good examples of super important non-essential nutrients are crazy important for health. And the more we consume, the lower our risk of like every chronic illness. And I think as we get into some of the um, more specific examples of what nutrients are doing in our bodies, um, I think that'll become really clear that um, non-essential is uh, really a misnomer. It should be maybe like less essential or I don't know what the right word for it is. I think... um we need it to be around the fact that you like could make it yourself because that is mind blowing and cool to me that your body can take something else you've given it and then make the thing that it needs. And therefore you don't necessarily need that other thing, but it's also, I'm assuming a burden on your body to consistently do that without, um, that additional nutrient input, right? Like, sure. Yeah. No. So for example, I mean, we will talk about vitamin A specifically in a little bit. Um, but we often sort of get told that things like carrots, right. Full of carotenoids, which our body can convert into the active form of vitamin, vitamin A, which is retinols and retinols. Um, and so we'll, you know, you often see these lists of like vitamin A rich foods and it'll include like sweet potatoes and carrots and, you know, like all of these different vegetables, especially orange, like bright orange type vegetables, because those, that orange color comes from beta carotene and other carotenoids. Um, that conversion at sort of best is about 3%. It's really inefficient. And if you have certain, um, genetic, um, uh, genetic, well, they're basically, they're SNPs that are altering the genes, right? So you have a slightly lower ability to convert carotenoids into vitamin A with certain, certain genes. Um, if you're unlucky enough to have one of that, your, your, your conversion is 0.3%. Like it's, it's much, much lower. And so in those cases, we really need to be consuming active vitamin A, which we're getting from, you know, seafood and meat. And, um, and so there's a lot of nutrients where we can take a precursor molecule and convert it into the actual molecule that our bodies use. But that conversion isn't always super efficient. It is always better to be consuming the active form, uh, the most digestible and um, absorbable form, the form that doesn't need so many steps to be converted into whatever is needed for our bodies to use it. It is always better to get that from food. I would agree <laughs> also because I don't like taking, I don't like taking pills and supplements. I, I, you know, we both take supplements and it's like my least favorite part of my day to like start my morning with a bunch of that stuff. I'd much rather have a, you know, diversity of fruits and vegetables and other things in my day-to-day -day diet, so to speak, than to have to do all that, so. For sure. Wait, wait, wait. Let's just also emphasize that there's a lot of science showing that the nutrients in a multivitamin are very poorly absorbed, that they tend to, I mean, you're basically going, it's going straight through you. It's coming out the other end. 
um, we are not actually absorbing very well from, from multivitamins. And part of that has to do with the way they're put into it, like a tablet or a capsule form. It has to do with the different fillers that are used to make it shelf stable. Um, but it also has to do with the different forms of nutrients that are in there. So, um, you often get in a, uh, in a multivitamin capsule, you'll get a different form of a nutrient than you would get from foods or that your body uses. Um, you know, vitamin B9, also called folate or the human um, sort of man-made form is called folic acid is a really good example. Um, the reason why folic acid is put into multivitamins is because it's better absorbed, but it actually requires multiple steps to be converted into what our bodies actually use, which is methylfolate. And so in order for us to, to actually do all that conversion, we need all these other B vitamins, like it is a multi-step process. And some people aren't very good at converting, especially if you have uh, methylation gene deficiencies like MTHFR, that's going to impact your ability to turn folic acid into the active folate that our bodies actually use for you know, it's actually used by our mitochondria to form cellular energy, like all of the B vitamins. And so if you aren't a good converter and you're consuming high amounts of folic acid, we now have studies showing that high levels of folic acid in the blood increases risk of cancer. And so that's bad, right? We're, we're, we've basically sort of uh, simplistically looked at vitamin absorption in the construction of a supplement without actually considering vitamin utilization, which really is where a, you know, methylfolate is a far better form to be consuming. Um, and so we've got this, this real sort of mismatch between the forms that are in most multivitamins and what our bodies actually need. Or also there's a lot of synergy between nutrients in, in terms of how they're used or how they're absorbed. And so having that, um, that synergy in a, in a pill that is designed to like meet all of your nutrient shortfalls is really tough because you're more likely to be putting in things that are going to compete for binding than you are to put in things that are going to help, you know, absorption. And so that is something that we tend to just naturally get from food. We tend to food just it's pretty awesome. I mean, it, it became food for a reason. Uh, and it is because it tends to provide nutrients in the best forms for our bodies to use them. When we're talking about whole foods, not like man-made, manufactured, industrially processed foods, right? Whole foods tend to have nutrients in the forms that our bodies need to use them best and in synergistic quantities so that we can absorb them best. And it's, it's almost as though we evolved consuming similar types of foods for, you know, a couple million years. It's almost like that. Now you're just getting wild. Yeah, I am. I am. I am. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about biological systems and, and their nutrient needs. And I, I want to kind of breeze through this a little bit. I, I really just want to use this as an example for how complex each biological system is, depending on how you count it. There's basically like 12 biological systems. So think like skeletal system, muscular system, gastrointestinal system. Um, let's talk about the central nervous system. So that's the, you know, the nervous system in general, right? Brain, spinal cords, and nerves, central nervous system, 
brain and right this is the the part of the body that um not just is responsible for thinking and making decisions but really uh controls everything, right? So your brain is controlling your heart rate and your respiration rate. It's just not conscious control. That's the subconscious part of your brain. And so without, um, I mean, this is going to be a super shocker to all of our listeners, without your brain, it turns out um, you can't do anything uh, biologically speaking. Um, It turns out brains are really necessary for health. And the nutrients that they require include basically all of the B vitamins. So B vitamins in general, as I mentioned, are used in making cellular energy. So our our cells don't actually use sugar like glucose directly for energy. Glucose is converted into a molecule called adenosine triphosphate or ATP. And that is the molecule that actually is the energy input for any chemical reaction within a cell. And that Production of ATP is uh, very complex. There's there's many, many steps. Um, It's uh, something called either the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle. Those names are interchangeable for the same circle of chemical reactions that produces ATP. And B vitamins in general just input just about every single step in all of those chemical reactions. Um, But the, uh, there are some B vitamins that are important for neurotransmitter production, including vitamin B1 and vitamin B6, and choline, which is a B vitamin that doesn't get a number because it's obviously, it, just, it was basically discovered too late to get in the number game. Um, they're all important for neurotransmitter production. Our uh, neurons have this thing around them called a myelin sheath to help protect, protect them. Um, vitamin B12 and copper are really important for um, the integrity of the myelin sheath. Um, vitamin D is really important for um, controlling biorhythms, which are really important for how the brain prioritizes functions when we're asleep or awake, but also it's responsible for about the expression of about 200 genes. So uh, vitamin D is basically part of every single part of central nervous system health. Um, our nerves actually communicate with these like electrical signals that are basically mediated by um, electrolytes, right? So calcium and potassium being particularly important electrolytes um, in the nervous system, but magnesium, um, sodium, also really important. Um, Sulfur is really important for how our cells use oxygen as well as cellular regeneration. Omega-3 fats, and these are the long-chain omega-3 fats that we're getting from seafood, specifically DHA and EPA, are really important for nerve signaling and cellular health, and they help to maintain the blood-brain barrier. So our brains are really unique in the sense that they have this special barrier. The the vascular system uh, can't, not, not everything that's in the blood can get into the brain, which is different than other tissues. And that's because the brain's, again, super important. We really want to protect it. And so the blood-brain barrier is to protect the brain from toxins, from pathogens, and without sufficient omega-3s, we can't maintain the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. And a leaky blood-brain barrier is really bad. It tends to turn on inflammation in the brain, um, which then has, uh, it basically has then effects in the entire body. With an inflamed brain, um, which can happen with toxin exposures, it can happen with things like stress and adequate sleep as well. Um, then you basically, you are changing, uh, how your heart is functioning, how your lungs are functioning, how your GI tract is functioning, how your immune system is functioning. Like all of the signals your brain sends out, um, are impacted when it's inflamed. Um, tryptophan is used to make serotonin and melatonin, really important neurotransmitters. 
Uh, phenylalanine is an amino acid that's used to make dopamine. Glutamate and glutamic acid are used to make the neurotransmitter GABA. Um, and polyphenols, again, those are those like non-essential phytonutrients, um, are really important for promoting um, nerve signaling, as well as generally like protecting the brain from oxidative damage. And they're like overall anti-inflammatory. So those that's just like a like a a general overview of the nutrients that the central nervous system needs. And you can see represented in that list, right? Vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential amino acids, as well as phytonutrients. Um, those are all represented in what the brain needs to, to function optimally. Um, and the immune system, you know, I, I, often talk about the immune system as like a nutrient hog. Um, so I think the immune system is probably the most greedy of all of the biological systems in terms of the nutrients that it requires to function optimally. And this becomes really important when we talk about health and wellness because the immune system, when it is not regulating itself well, it tends to turn on inflammation and not be able to turn it off. So that's when you get this sort of generalized inflammation. It's also called systemic inflammation. That is a contributor to every chronic illness. So every chronic illness, think autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, think chronic kidney disease, asthma, allergies, um, you know, gout, right? All of these different conditions have inflammation as if not the main culprit behind the progression and development of the disease, um, at least a major contributor to all of the disease processes. And so immune system that can't regulate itself is really, a, it's a bad thing. And it turns out that nutritional insufficiencies, not even as far as a deficiency, right? An insufficiency is we're not getting enough, but we're still above a threshold to show signs of deficiency. Um, nutrient insufficiencies pretty dramatically impact how the immune system is working. So the immune system uses pretty much all of the vitamins, um, but vitamins A and D are really important for immune regulation. They're really important for how, how the immune system basically reigns itself in so you don't get that body-wide out-of-control inflammation. Um, all of the B vitamins are really important for, again, sort of that cellular energy. Every cell needs those. Um, vitamins K and E are used by the immune system as antioxidants, as, as is vitamin C. Um, zinc, which is a crazy important mineral, um, is actually important for the production of immune cells, as well as the chemicals that immune cells make that they use to communicate with each other. They're called cytokines. Um, so zinc is necessary for cytokine production. Uh, selenium is a really, really important antioxidant um, used by the immune system, but it also has an impact on cellular function, which is really important because if immune cells can't function properly, they can't do their job properly. So they can't protect us from uh, a pathogen, a virus, or bacteria. But also our immune system, one of our immune system's jobs is to um, actually detect cells that are up to some cancer-like shenanigans and uh, kill them off before they become cancer. So part of the pathogenesis of cancer, cancer is super complicated. It's not as dim. But part of the development of cancer is an immune system that's like not not functioning properly by it's failing to detect those precancerous cells. Um, the the eater cells of our immune system that find like bacteria and viruses and engulf them, they need iodine to function normally. Um, iron is really important for a variety of enzymes that are used by our immune system. 
Magnesium is really important for the thymus gland um, to function normally. The thymus gland actually is like a high school for immune cells where it teaches immune cells what to do. Uh, super cool, underrated uh, organ in the human body. Um, copper is really important, again, for uh, cell division. So when we are faced with a pathogen, we want our immune cells to divide really quickly so that there's more of them. And they um, they basically clone themselves. So they like learn the pathogen, they learn the bad guy, and then they clone themselves so that there's more of them to fight the bad guy. So that's more efficient than like bringing in new cells from the bone marrow that still have to learn the bad guy. So copper, super great. Um, Omega-3s, also really important for basically cellular health, but those eater cells need omega-3s in their cell membrane in order to have a more flexible membrane to do their job better. And flavonoids, which again are a class of phytonutrients, are really important antioxidants used by the immune system. And so between just these two systems, um, it's really easy to see um, we've, you know, basically represented a, a vast majority of essential and non-essential nutrients. Um, if we added one more system, like the gastrointestinal tract, that's where you would start to see a lot more, you know, especially when you talk about like liver detoxification, a lot of amino acids used in liver detoxification. Um, by the time we even talk about three out of the 12 biological systems, we've basically represented every possible nutrient and a role for every possible nutrient. Not to mention, you know, there's certain certain ubiquities among all cells, right? So I've mentioned B vitamins a few times, like all cells use B vitamins to produce energy to do their function. And so there's certain nutrients that are just required across the board because every cell uses it in some way. I'm still like reeling from all of that. And also uh, just want to take a moment for our new listeners to be like, so when Sarah says she's going to quickly run through things... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to talk really fast for 10 minutes. Right. That's what I mean. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just, yeah, motor mouth through it. I I think it's really interesting to you. You mentioned earlier things like, you know, scurvy being, if you don't have vitamin C or um, rickets, if you don't have vitamin D, but something I actually learned that I'm curious to learn more about is this idea of, um, insufficiency versus mm. versus deficiency, which I don't think we've actually kind of gone into. Um, maybe you could just highlight that a little bit because I know that um, we're going to talk about the prevalence of nutritional deficiencies, but now I'm thinking, well, gosh, that means everybody's got to have nutritional um, insufficiencies yeah. <laughs> if like the deficiencies are that high, right? Yes. So often the term deficiency and insufficiency are used interchangeably and that misleading. So an in insufficiency can be defined as simply not consuming the recommended daily allowance or the daily value, depending on which nutrient we're talking about, of a specific nutrient. So if we say, okay, so the, the recommended or the daily value of uh, fiber, uh, to, to grab one that I actually know the number of off the top of my head, the um, recommended amount to consume for women per day is 25 grams. And for men, it's 30 to 38 grams. Um, it basically scales by caloric intake. Um, we can talk all day about why that's probably actually only half of what we need. And that's a whole separate conversation. But um, if you consume, say, 24 grams in a day, if you're a woman, uh, that is an insufficiency. 
So it basically means that you are not consuming what, you know, those numbers are set, um, the daily value and the recommended daily allowance are set based on uh, a, you know, body of scientific literature. The idea is it is a number for which 97.5% of the population, if they consume that amount, will not show a sign of deficiency. So, A, the recommended daily allowance is actually only, uh, we really need to be thinking of it as a minimum, not a goal. And uh, so it's not the finish line, right? It's the starting line. And then we need to be thinking about how much more than the recommended daily allowance we can be getting. And we need to recognize that there's still, you know, basically, you know, 2.5% of the population for which the RDA or the daily value is not going to be enough. Um, and there will still be signs of deficiency. Um, so an insufficiency can be sort of broadly defined as uh, not not meeting the the daily value, whereas a deficiency would be defined as like if we measure it in your blood, you don't have what would we be considered within the normal range, or um, that you have some kind of symptom that we can associate with um, deficiency. So with vitamin C deficiency, um, maybe you have bleeding gums, right? A, a sign of scurvy. Um, so deficiency and insufficiency, again, sort of used interchangeably because there's this whole blurry line where like, when does an insufficiency become a deficiency? Well, when either we can measure that your, you know, vitamin D in your body is below 30, right? <laughs> that would be now we're into deficiency territory at nanograms per milliliter. Um, but it's an insufficiency still between 30 and 50 nanograms per milliliter. So it's like, where is low and where is below low? The, and some of those cutoffs are still a matter for debate among scientists in the medical community. So for example, even though 30 nanograms per milliliter is sort of considered the, the cutoff for um, vitamin D, so below 30, you're definitely deficient and you almost certainly have symptoms, right? You're almost certainly fatigued at the very least um, with a vitamin D that low. Um, but an optimal vitamin D is probably more like 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter. So what do we do with that range between 30 and 50? That's where we call it insufficient. It's not quite enough, but it's not low enough to be deficient. Um, and I'm guilty, as so many people are, of using these terms interchangeably. Um, as we get into how common nutritional deficiencies are, most of this research is drawn from either looking at uh, sort of food journals and dietary intake, or they're looked at doing blood tests and actually measuring the nutrients in the blood. And it's, I've got kind of a mix here of, of, uh, types of research that's being drawn on to, to grab all of these different statistics. Definitely fascinating. I am curious, what are like the most common deficiencies? How, what is the prevalence of those? So, um, these are typically measured by, again, sort of either looking at food diaries and how much people are um, consuming versus looking at um, actual, like, taking a blood sample and, and measuring. And so the easiest, the easiest thing to do is, is get food diaries, right? Like, take a picture of all your meals and send it to us with a description, and then the scientists calculate what the most probable nutrient value 
is going to be of that meal. And then they do a bunch of fancy statistics. Um, and it depends on whether or not you you include enriched foods and supplements in your calculation. So if you include, um, so again, so it sort of depends on exactly how you do this calculation. But the the nutrients that I think are the most concerning are um, some of these ones that are found in less abundance in common foods. Um, so for example, uh, zinc, which I've already mentioned, is one of the most common nutrient deficiencies. An estimated 73% of Americans are not consuming enough, so they're insufficient in zinc. Um, vitamin D, an estimated 75% of people are deficient. Um, that's based on blood tests of vitamin D. Um, but other common ones, right? Um, you know, I've already mentioned fiber, uh, long chain omega threes. Seventy percent of us are deficient. That's measured from blood tests. Um, but basically, right, f the fat soluble vitamins A, D, and E, um, calcium and magnesium and zinc, um, and some of the B vitamins. Even though they're water soluble and we think of them as pretty easy to get, approximately seventy five percent of us aren't getting enough folate, vitamin B nine, and approximately fifty four percent of us aren't getting enough B six. And this becomes a a real challenge because each one of these nutrients, um, you know, just looking at essential nutrients plus fiber, um, they're, they have really important roles in multiple systems, right? So there's no nutrient that only does one thing in the body. And so when we're insufficient or deficient in that nutrient, the systems that need that nutrient in order to function can't perform their function up to like full capacity. So if you think about the immune system as a really good example of a system that, you know, once you start being deficient in nutrients, it can't fight a foreign invader as well or heal a wound as well. It also can't regulate itself as well. So it can't turn itself off once that virus is vanquished. Um, and that leads to a situation that is conducive to the development of chronic illness. Um, but we can extend that into, you know, our livers don't have the nutrients they need for all of it, their detoxification reactions, then we can't detoxify um, effectively. If our brains don't have the nutrients needed for effective nerve firing, then we can feel, we can get cognitive deficits, but we can feel like brain fog and fatigue and headaches. Like there's all these sort of symptoms that um, can be normalized, but that are really related to a biological system in the human body not having the nutritional resources that it needs to function optimally. Um, think of it as, you know, if you, um, you know, if your, if your car is almost out of gas, you know, the, the, the term like running on fumes, right. It'll continue to like sputter for a little bit before it completely conks out. But if you always just kept a little tiny bit of gas in that gas tank, it would keep going but it's all, you're always going to be walking that line. And that's kind of what like nutritional deficiencies are. It's kind of like running a car with like a half gallon of gas in the tank. Um, and, and our biological systems, um, are, it's not always predictable because there's so many different genes that, that influence how resilient each one of us are to nutritional deficiencies. It's not always predictable at what point the engine's going to go, Never mind. We're just, we're just going to pull over and we're done. <laughs> and you're going to have to walk to the gas station now. 
Um, and so it's, it's really important again, to sort of be mindful of the, the full array of nutrients that our bodies need, the vast diversity of jobs those nutrients do in our bodies and the foods that have them. I really like that analogy of the gas tank. Like a, Thanks. I came up with good, that on the spot. That was, that was, that was completely improv. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you see are the ones we are most commonly deficient in? And then my favorite thing that we do, talking about where you can find mm-hmm. those nutrients, right? Like, we don't just want to tell you all the problems. We like to be problem solvers. Um, <laughs> so if you are deficient in B vitamins, because now I'm super paranoid about my brain health, um, <laughs> where would I be finding? <laughs> that was not the goal. Yeah, so um, there's various estimates out there that upwards of like 90% of Americans are deficient, not insufficient, but deficient in a nutrient. Now, in part of that, there's like several dozen nutrients that are, you know, considered essential. So um, at some point you're rolling a dice, right? Which one am I actually deficient in? Um, but let's go through uh, just those nutrients where scientific studies estimate that more than half of us are deficient. Um, there's 10 of them. So there's 10 nutrients that like the, the prevalence of deficiency is something like half of us or more. Um, and let's, I'll do a, a really brief and not just talking fast brief, but like actual brief, what does it do in the body? And then the food sources. And let's start with vitamin A because we already sort of talked a little bit about vitamin A um, as being really important to get from animal food sources. Um, vitamin A is important for our bones, for our eyes, for our immune systems, uh, for all of our barrier tissues. So that's like gut barrier. So think leaky gut, um, but also our skin barrier, our lung barrier, our sinus barrier. So anything that is a tissue that um, basically separates inside the body from outside of the body uh, needs vitamin A to be healthy. Um, and so it is kind of, I mean, it's kind of important everywhere. By the time you're talking about barrier tissues and the immune system, you're, you're a nutrient that kind of does, you're a multitasker. Um, the top food source of vitamin A is liver. Pause for reaction. I was like, are you going to list <laughs> any others? No, I, I, we're going to, like you were mentioning B vitamins being in everything. Uh, we're going to talk about essentially organ meats as being, um, a high optimized source for almost all of these deficiencies. And before we even get there, don't worry, you can take a pill for that. <laughs> this <laughs> is one of those kind of pill. Different kind of pill. This is one of those supplements that I do take every morning. We're not medical professionals. We cannot advise you um, on what would be good for you, but I have MTHFR. I have um, an inability to properly methylate my own B vitamins, so I definitely need like extra help with them. And I love that in taking essentially what is like a dehydrated powdered form of liver then encapsulated, um, that I'm still getting a whole food form. And I think that's one of the things that um, I want to really encourage you listeners as as we're talking about these different deficiencies in the foods that you can eat. The reason that we talk about it in the context of foods is because, as Sarah mentioned, just taking a multivitamin is not um, as readily absorbed um, 
or even the highest quality that you might get in a real food source that you um, have on your own. But for me, I don't eat enough organ meat. It's not something I'm actively putting on my family's food table multiple times a week. And so I know that for me, the the best way to get it is um, to take, take a supplement of, and it's not an extraction. It is a whole food that is simply like dehydrated and, and powdered put in a capsule yeah. yeah um you know liver and basically other organ meats are our best food sources of vitamin a red meat is pretty good um and then fish and shellfish are really good sources and then pork and poultry are pretty good sources of vitamin a but it's sort of it's actually hard to get enough you know when we ignore the the orange vegetable as a source of vitamin a because we recognize that our conversion can be so inefficient um you know and we focus only on animal sources of vitamin A. Um, so we're getting that preformed active form vitamin A. Um, it can be really tough to meet the body's needs without organ meat. Um, I, I, I would, um, it's, it's challenging. It's one of the reasons why I often talk about micronutrient tracking. Um, it becomes a game, right? So here I'm, I met the RDA of all of these things. What's the food that I can consume to fill in the gaps of the things I haven't met the RDA yet of. Um, and so when you, when you start to play that game, it's, it, it comes really obvious really quickly how valuable organ meats are for filling these nutritional gaps. Absolutely. And I think um, I was a vegetarian for seven years. And what I learned from that experience and what I hear from a lot of people when I talk to them is that these deficiencies catch up with you after a few years. And that's when you start to potentially see health issues because so many of these top food sources are um, animal for several of these nutrients. Now, we're going to talk about many others where we're big fans of vegetables here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're all about the vegetables. But unfortunately, there are just some that are either only available or best available from an animal source. And so if you're a vegetarian or you're limited in how you eat animal products, um, Sarah and I have both said fish and eggs will get you very far Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're prioritizing them. So if you can do pescatarian, that's ideal. But um, we recognize that not everybody eats meat. I don't want to like gloss over that, but I do want to say that having been someone who in my youth – was a vegetarian for so long, it really did negatively affect my health long term. And so um, if you're able to prioritize these foods and supplements, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, and actually, let's let's stick a pin in that because I think we'll we'll come back to that um, at the end of this show and really talk about um, Nutrivore as a, a diet modifying term as opposed to a, a diet by itself. Um, so let's, let's make sure that we come back to that. Um, and let's talk about a vitamin that is also found in, in fruits and vegetables, because as you said, we are, um, I, I would say, uh, on average, we promote a, uh, very plant focused diet. How about that? Um, lots of fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds in moderation, lots of fresh herbs. Um, these foods that, uh, really are, foundational in terms of the nutrients that they provide. Um, and so vitamin B6, which approximately 54% of us are not 
getting enough of. Again, like a like all B vitamins, really important for you know just the the production of cellular energy. Um, really important for metabolism in general, but it's also important for the synthesis of neurotransmitters, as I already mentioned, for the synthesis of hemoglobin. That's the molecule in our red blood cells that binds oxygen and uh, carbon dioxide and helps you know bring the oxygen from our lungs to all the cells in our body. Um, and also it's really important for the methylation cycle, which we've, we've alluded to a few times with talking about MTHFR, but basically we have a whole pile of proteins in our bodies, enzymes in our bodies that are turned on or off with what's called methylation. So it is a way that our bodies modify a protein after the protein is formed. That's called a post-translational modification. Um, and it's like a, it's like a light switch, right? So we can turn, we can turn a protein on or off by methylating it. And what our body does is, you know, this methyl is a, it's a, you know, little, um, molecular, uh, group that gets stuck onto the end of a protein that would say turn it, some proteins are turned on by methylation. Some proteins are turned off by methylation and our bodies recycle that little methyl group. Um, so if we pull it off one protein, it goes into this like recycling bin to be used for another protein that we're going to turn, put it on to. Um, and so that is called the methylation cycle. That's sort of like recycling of these little methyl groups as our bodies you know, are really dynamic in terms of turning on and off different proteins to drive different chemical reactions. So the top sources of vitamin B6 include a lot of um, vegetables, peppers, um, anything in the onion family, onions, garlics, leek, um, dark leafy greens in general. There are some seeds um, and nuts, especially pistachios and sunflower seeds that have quite a lot of B6. Um, and, uh, liver, I think we already talked about liver, liver is a great source, um, fish in general and like meat, poultry and red meat is also pretty good. What about the other forms of B vitamins? Are they going to be found in similar foods? Um, generally, so B9 is the other B vitamin that more than half of us are deficient in. It's about 75% of us. Um, and not that, the other B vitamins are off the hook. They're just, you know, tend to be more like the 20 to 30% deficiency range. Um, so B9, again, also called folate, um, is found in same sort of like green vegetables in general, organ meat in general. Um, it's actually really, um, there's a pretty good amount in a lot of different kinds of seaweeds. Um, we find it in avocados, in papayas, in strawberries, in beets, um, and actually dried bean type legumes can, can also contain a fairly good amount of folate. Interesting. Okay. What is next? Or rather, I already, I already know what's next. Because <laughs> the outline's in front of you. Excellent. Also because 75% of us are deficient in it. And it's something we talk about often on the show, which is vitamin D. Um, yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go outside of the confines of our outline and say that the top source of vitamin D is the sun. <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah. Did you know that we make vitamin D from cholesterol in response to UV radiation? I actually did know that. That's pretty Because cool. my, my smart friend Sarah taught me that a long time oh, ago. Yeah. We actually did a whole episode on vitamin D. That was episode 354 for any listeners who want to go back and listen to it. Um, but briefly, vitamin D controls the expression of more than 200 genes, as already mentioned. So through that, it affects uh, mineral metabolism, especially calcium. 
Um, that's really important for uh, skeletal health. Um, it's really important for synthesizing a lot of neurotransmitters, uh, hormones. Uh, it's really important. Again, we mentioned biorhythms already, really important for the immune system. Another one that's really important for barrier tissue health. So that's like gut barrier, skin barrier, for example, um, and just generally important for cell survival, right? Like cells need vitamin D in order to, to work and to be alive. Um, so it's, it's really important. And yes, our, our best source is actually the vitamin D that we make in response to UV radiate radiation. And this is why with vitamin D, unlike every other nutrient that we're talking about, it's really important to get your vitamin D levels tested. And if they are deficient or insufficient, look at supplementation, the dose that is needed, um, to bring you up to a healthy sort of 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter range varies pretty wildly from person to person. And that's based on, uh, how well your body synthesizes vitamin D in response to the sun, how much sun exposure you're getting, which then is like, where do you live and what time of year is it? All of those different things. So with vitamin D, it's, it's, um, really helpful um, if you're going to need a supplement, uh, it's really hard to get enough from food sources and sun exposure if you're deficient to bring your levels up to normal. Um, so it's really important to retest and make sure you don't overshoot the mark. Um, so once you get up to like 75 to 80 nanograms per milliliter in the blood, that is a therapeutic dose for some situations. So like cardiovascular disease and cancer, they are like specifically doctors are giving really high doses of vitamin D with that's a whole different Let's just shove that to the side. Just know that exists. Um, but for a person without those health challenges, um, getting up to 75 to 80 is sort of the cusp for, for starting to get problems of too high vitamin D. So there, for all of these nutrients, um, there's a happy medium range where the body is best. It's really hard to go overboard with foods. Um, and that's why when we're talking about supplementation with vitamin D, that's where this overboard with supplementation can happen. So for example, um, there's no, even consuming a, a ton of liver, um, it's, it's very, it would be, it would be, you'd have to be really dedicated to the large consumption of liver on a daily basis to hit toxic levels of vitamin A or consume like bare liver or sea lion liver, like these, there are types of liver out there that are very unusual that you would only get if you're say a hunter that can have very like crazy high levels of vitamin A. Um, but the average person just consuming the liver that they're going to get at the grocery store from the local farm, you know, even consuming it every night for dinner, you're not going to consume too much vitamin A to hit vitamin A toxicity. That's really only seen in the context of supplements. Um, with vitamin D, again, right, the overshooting the mark is really only something that you're going to have occur with supplements, and that's why it's important to retest. Um, but food sources for people who are mildly insufficient and want to really just focus on bringing that back up with sun exposure and foods, our food sources are seafoods in general, as well as um, dairy and eggs and meat um, where the animal is outside. So eggs from pasture-raised hens, grass-fed meat, pasture-raised meat. Um, basically, if the animal is in the sun and can make their own vitamin D, then their fat will contain some vitamin D. Um, so it's really important to then look at the quality of the food. And then 
both mushrooms and tofu have some vitamin D2, which again is like a precursor form. Our bodies need to convert it into vitamin D3. Um, so it can be helpful in the, in the context of uh, a holistic approach um, to address a mild insufficiency in vitamin D. Um, it's not enough in the context of a larger insufficiency or deficiency in vitamin D. I always love the analogy of like imagining the animals living a healthy, happy life outside getting sunlight. And then that cycle positively helping our health as well. It's kind of like when you were like, our listeners will be shocked to hear that brains are good for you. <laughs> um, like, I don't think it's shocking to hear that if we, you know, had a better food cycle for that which we consume that we would be better off and that mm -hmm. like putting animals close together and giving them antibiotics and lack of sunlight it turns out it's not so good for us so well, we I'm could, glad you we could make a very similar statement about like growing vegetables in depleted soils too we yes, know that yes. um, vegetables grown now have depending on the vitamin and mineral you look at you know anywhere between, you know, like some of them like copper, there's way less copper in our vegetables now than there was in like in the 1950s when these were things were first measured. And it's because it's depleted from the soil. Um, so it's, it's a, we can make a similar, I think, argument for uh, responsible regenerative farming, I think is, is the argument and uh, humane treatment of the animals that we're raising for food. And also, you know, as we talk about, like, has organ meat not been on a list yet? I don't think so. Organ meat's also <laughs> vitamin D, just, just in case I skipped over organ meat for vitamin D. Um, you know, eating snout to tail also means that nothing's going to waste. And so that's another really important um, sustainability argument for, for eating this way. It's not only supplying our bodies with the nutrients, but it's also the best way to, you know, the most responsible way to raise food and make sure that we are reducing the carbon footprint of the food that we are raising and consuming for ourselves for the environment. 100% all in on all of that. So 60% of us are not getting enough vitamin E, which is one of the main antioxidants in the body. So it's quite important just as a anti-aging antioxidant, it's important for immune function. Um, our top sources, did I mention organ meat yet for vitamin E? Because we're going to start with there. <laughs> organ meat in general, uh, as well as fatty fish like salmon. Um, but we're also getting it from nuts and seeds, as well as avocados, olives, uh, leafy greens, and winter squash have a pretty good amount. Um, but vitamin E is a fat-soluble nutrient. Our best sources are really actually plant foods that are high-fat plant foods, like olives and nuts. I am shocked that organ meat would be on, on that list, list again yeah, it's on, that, on that list super, super. um okay moving on to two of my favorites that we hear asked about all the time mm -hmm. calcium and magnesium yeah common deficiencies yeah. very so 65 percent of us don't get enough calcium and 68 percent of us don't get enough magnesium and these are both electrolytes so they're they're both used in things like nerve conduction in muscle contraction um, calcium is also right a main structural mineral in bones and teeth um, it's also a cofactor for a lot of enzymes what does that mean exactly 
So a cofactor is something that permits an enzyme to do its job without getting used up. So uh, let's say uh, enzyme is changing uh, molecule A into molecule B. Calcium allows that enzyme to do its job without getting actually, it, it's not part of, um, it's not added onto molecule A to turn it into molecule B. So it's required for the enzyme to, to do its job without being part of the actual chemical reaction that the enzyme is facilitating. Interesting. So I would have thought just simply that it needs to be present by the definition of cofactor. I would have thought like it just needs to be present, but it goes further than that in so far as it's not being used, but it's, it needs to be present. It, yeah. So it needs, it needs to be, it needs basically the enzyme needs it to work, but it's not being used up when the enzyme does its job. Our bodies are crazy things. Yeah. All right. Um, and what are common sources? Because I know dairy's going to be on the list, but dairy's mm -hmm. not the only thing on the list. No, and that actually what's really interesting is that there's evidence that the calcium in vegetables like dark leafy greens, like the cabbage family of vegetables, is actually more easily absorbed and used by our bodies than the calcium in dairy. There's a, a bunch of studies actually showing so it's interesting that the data showing that looks at like osteoporosis risk factors is really mixed on dairy. There's some studies showing dairy has no effect. Some studies showing dairy is preventative against osteoporosis and some studies showing that high dairy consumption actually increases risk of osteoporosis. So we've kind of got like data all over the place, but what does have a really strong association with reduced osteoporosis risk is high vegetable consumption. And that may be because the calcium is better absorbed, but also because vegetables are just more nutrient dense than dairy. Dairy really only has a handful of minerals and a couple of vitamins. Um, and really only if you're consuming a high quality dairy, grass fed, high fat dairy, um, when you're consuming vegetables, you're consuming a much broader uh, collection of different nutrients um, that are also all very important for bone health. Bones are, are much more complicated than just calcium. So um so that that could be part of part of that um, association as well. Um, there are some other really great uh, sources. So uh, fish in general, but especially small fish where you eat the bones, as uh, a great source of calcium. Um, seaweed can be a great source of calcium. Um, there's a good amount of calcium in um, some seeds, especially like sesame seeds and chia seeds. Uh, tofu has a good amount of calcium. Um, and you can get some calcium from from meat, especially beef has a, has a, a, a notable amount. Um, but we're probably, probably our most valuable sources are dark leafy greens and um, especially things like kale, um, you know, that, that crossover between the dark leafy greens and the cabbage family, kale and arugula and turnip greens. That's I, that's, I blanked on other greens that would be both cruciferous and dark leafy collards. How could I forget about collards? Collards. <laughs> collards are actually really great to wrap around as like a sandwich. Like they have great texture and crunch. Um, anyway, sidetrack. I 
know also that um, one of the reasons that calcium can be depleted is by stress. So mm-hmm. I know we've said this before, but I just want to emphasize this here, especially as we get into magnesium, just keeping in mind that each one of these um, nutrients, the more stress you have in your life or the more, for example, inflammatory foods that you might be eating, such as refined sugar, the more it's actually going to deplete some of your nutrient storage. So um, if you're particularly stressed, if you've been enjoying the holiday season, (laughs) you know, those kinds of things, um, you need to be mindful and increase your focus on these um, micronutrients, not macronutrients. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting get my tongue twister there, but because um, your your body is using them up more quickly and in different ways. So you're going to need more of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, magnesium is another one that's very depleted by stress. Um, and in addition to dark leafy greens, um, we can find it actually green seeds like pumpkin seeds, uh, are a really good source of magnesium, but we can find it in pretty good amounts in other nuts and seeds like Brazil nuts, sunflower seeds. Uh, we can find it in avocados. Um, it's also in like fish. Um, soy products tend to have a, a notable amount um, of magnesium, but magnesium, like our, our superstar foods are like dark leafy greens. Um, we get a little bit from bananas, right? There, there's, there's some other places, but magnesium is actually one of the tougher ones, um, to, to get sufficient quantities of it. It takes, um, it, t- uh, the thing I love about food diaries, not as a day-to-day practice, but as a sort of a, a learning tool is we get to really look at like, what are the micronutrients in different foods? Um, and how do my food preferences, like what are the nutrients that I'm getting from those and what are the foods that can fill in the gaps? And it becomes, again, it's like a little, it's like a little jigsaw puzzle where we're trying to figure out how to, how to meet our nutritional needs from foods. And so we get these like powerhouse foods. Um, there's certain ones that we've said over and over and over again. Um, and those, if, when those found form the foundation of a diet, then we tend to have a much better chance of reaching nutrient sufficiency, meaning we're getting all of the nutrients, both essential and non-essential that our bodies need from food. Um, but it, it does become a little like, okay, so I've got my, you know, vitamin E and my folate and my magnesium. What's the food I can add to make sure I also get my calcium. And, and I think that when it's approached that way as a, um, as a, almost like a game, like how am I going to do this and, and do it with, um, nutrient dense foods, which means they have a lot of nutrients per calorie. Um, then, you know, then actually even when I'm focusing on nutrient dense foods, um, once I hit my targets or my minimums, right. For each of these nutrients, I've, I've purchased myself some wiggle room for that delicious thing that maybe doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. That wouldn't be like the concept behind Nutrivore, would it? Oh, not at all. Actually, it's exactly the concept behind Nutrivore. Um, let's, let's, we've got three more nutrients to run through. So zinc, I already mentioned, 73% of us are deficient. Uh, it's, it's important for the function of about 300 different enzymes. So it kind of does everything. Um, like it regulates uh, cellular health. Um, it regulates, it's important for like DNA transcription, like the production of proteins from DNA. Um, it's important for the, for B vitamins to do their jobs. 
Um, it's essential in things like muscle contraction. Um, it's important for the production of insulin and testosterone. It's a component of the vitamin D receptor. So our vitamin D can't do its job properly if we don't have enough vitamin or if we don't have enough zinc. Um, and it's really important as a in especially the regulatory aspects of the immune system. So zinc deficiency by itself can drive inflammation. So zinc, zinc is like multi-purpose. It's all over the place. It kind of does everything. And our I know the source... number wait, wait, I know the number one okay. source of it without looking at notes because it's what I order anytime I go out and it's on the menu. Mm-hmm. It's oysters. And yes. it's like my rule with myself that if oyster I, I live on the Chesapeake area of the East Coast. So if oysters are in season and they're on the menu, I always order them because mm-hmm. I know that it's an excellent source of zinc. It is by far the best source of zinc. Um, you could eat oysters once a week and meet your zinc requirements for the week. Um, it's it's uh, Oysters are the best source. Um, other like clams and mussels are also pretty good, but they, they're still nowhere near as high as oysters. The second best source actually is um, <clears throat> liver. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Okay, but like other organ meats are really good sources. Other shellfish um, are really good sources. Uh, There's some amounts in uh, mushrooms um, and red meat, especially wild game. Um, And there's a little bit in seaweed. So there are some other places to get get zinc. But zinc, given that 73% of us are not getting enough, um, given that it's... um, so crazy important for so many different functions in the human body, um, that it's important for other nutrients like B vitamins and vitamin D to work properly. Um, so it's kind of a linchpin in that sense. Um, it's, it's one of the strongest arguments that I can make for eating uh, shellfish and organ meat is, is for the, the zinc consumption. I'm doing my part. I'm just, I'm just going to let you know. <laughs> so <laughs> We also talked about long-chain omega-3 fats, DHA and EPA. We actually did an entire episode, episode 415, talking about these fats. Um, but from um, the research actually measuring the amount of these fats in the cell membranes of our red blood cells, researchers have been able to identify that about 70% of us are deficient. And omega-3 fats, are they're basically really important for immune health. They're anti-inflammatory. They're really important for vascular health. They have a really strong correlation with cardiovascular disease. Really important for uh, neural health, for brain health. Uh, Really important for uh, our vision, for for our eyes. Really important for the gut microbiome. So the community of bacteria that live in our guts that are so important for so many different aspects of our health. And I think, as I've already mentioned, like this is one of those nutrients that's important for cellular health in general. So every cell is healthier. Um, it's also really important for how our cells communicate with each other. So a lot of the communication molecules that our cells make need these fats in order for the communication to be healthy. So um, these are just phenomenally important. And our our best sources are fish and shellfish. Uh, we're also getting some from from high quality, like grass-fed meat, um, especially grass-fed organ meat and grass-fed dairy. There's some in seaweeds and algaes. Um, and that's about it. Uh, so there, there's some like nuts, like walnuts and chia and flax seeds that are sort of labeled as high omega threes, but this is ALA, which is a shorter, um, fat 
in it's a shorter omega-3 and our bodies have to convert ALA into the longer DHA or EPA. And again, it's very similar to the carotenoids to vitamin A conversion problem that again, like we're about 3% conversion efficiency. It's, it's not great. Um, so there are some uses for ALA in the body. It doesn't mean those foods are bad. And in fact, you know, walnuts are like superstar foods. Um, they're, they're, They've got lots of good stuff for us, um, but uh, but the omega three fats are not it. Um, we're really getting those again. Fish and shellfish are our best sources by a landslide, especially those sort of fattier cold water fish like salmon. Okay, last one. We've talked about fiber, but you can never talk about fiber enough. And my favorite phrase with fiber um, is to think of macronutrients, I don't actually think of them as carbohydrates. I think of it as like fat, protein, and fiber because I want my carbohydrates to have fiber because oh, I like it. Because so many of us need more and it's super good for you. Yeah. Approximately 90% of us are not getting enough fiber. And that's again, like the fiber target set by the USDA are again, probably about half of what is actually optimal. Um, fiber does more than just feed our gut bacteria. So, um, you know, people tend to think of fiber as doing two things. One is it helps you poop. Uh, and the other one is, uh, if you're, if you're more like a science nerd like me, uh, it helps the gut microbiome. It's like the main food for them. Um, but fiber does some other things that are really important. So fiber also helps to eliminate toxins. Um, so when the liver is detoxifying, um, some of the byproducts of that detoxification reaction go into the gallbladder. Then when we can, we eat the gallbladder, uh, pushes all of its, the bile and all of its contents into the small intestine. And then if we don't have enough fiber to bind with those molecules that the livers worked so hard to, you know, detoxify, um, ideally they bind with fiber and then they're eliminated. If we don't have enough fiber, they can get reabsorbed. And then our poor liver basically has to do the, the do it all over again. Um, so fiber is really important for, uh, detoxification. A lot of hormones are regulated, uh, similarly. So, um, there's a lot of hormones that make it into our guts that then get reabsorbed and recycled. And if we don't consume enough fiber, too much of it can get reabsorbed. This is actually one of the things that can drive uh, estrogen excess, which can be a really big problem for women, um, is insufficient fiber intake. And it's because um, our bodies are sort of designed uh, under some basic assumptions about diet. Uh, and one of those is that we will consume enough fiber that a certain amount of excess hormones will be eliminated and then the right amount will be reabsorbed and reused. Um, and so when we don't consume the amount of fiber that our bodies are designed to work with, we can end up with hormone imbalances. Um, and then there's some really fun things that kind of come downstream, especially of the effects on the gut microbiome. So uh, high fiber diets are correlated with lower disease risk across the board, uh, healthier immune systems, anti-inflammatory can promote better sleep to eat a high fiber diet. Um, it can promote better, uh, neural health, better blood brain barrier health. It turns out our gut bacteria are a major controller of our blood brain barrier, which is crazy to think of. Um, so we want to feed them all the, that healthy fiber that they want and not supplement fiber because that's one kind of fiber. So it feeds one kind of bacteria. We want fiber diversity, which we get from whole foods. Yes. And 
Especially we want protection of the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, this is is the new thing (laughs) we're about to do. If there's one takeaway for me on this show. Um, So I know we've talked a lot about vegetables, especially now with fiber. Um, One of the things that I want to make sure everybody knows is we have an entire series on vegetables. So if you want to geek out more with us um, on that, and as much as we start off overwhelming you with how much we want you to eat. Um, We also give you a breakdown of ways to get more in. And um, our most recent show, Sarah scared everybody by telling them that they needed 30 varieties of fruits and vegetables a week. But turns out I have been counting my own every week since and I have exceeded every week without like having to intentionally add anything else other than just the regular stuff we're going through. So maybe we could talk about how we can accomplish that. Like what are those frequent flyer foods, both from like a vegetable perspective, um, but also some of the other things that we add and see. I know I noticed um, obviously liver or, you know, organ meats. Um, But one of the things that also really stood out to me was um, mushrooms and seaweed Mm -hmm. were on a number of lists. And that's something that I have to intentionally add that isn't something naturally like comes to our family, but it is something that I have been more intentional about as we've educated ourselves on all this stuff. Yeah. So let's, um, let's do a little like summary of what were the frequent flyer foods that came up over and over again, right? So these are foods that are going to help fill in nutritional gaps and more than one. Um, and so the, the most nutrient dense foods so that are the foods that supply a large amount of valuable vitamins and minerals and other nutrients per calorie. Um, the ones that came up over and over again were organ meat. Um, and we actually did an entire episode, episode 347 on practical ways to eat snout to tail, which is that idea of eating organ meat in the same proportion as you would find on the animal. Um, So whether that is, uh, you know, getting a cow share from a local farm um, or sort of doing it more manually than that, um, we we really had that that entire show was dedicated to uh, ways of eating organ meat. And I think it's important to reiterate, Stacey, as you mentioned, um, you know, earlier on in the show, um, we recognize that organ meat is – it's a big ask for a lot of people, especially when you're new to um, thinking about foods as supplying nutrients to the body. I think a lot of what diet culture has taught us is to think of foods in terms of calories or carb grams um, or fat grams and not really think about it in terms of micronutrients. So thinking about foods as uh, supplying these valuable micronutrients, when you're really in that like oh my gosh, that's like, I have to completely reframe the calculus that goes into choosing the foods that I'm eating. And now I, and now you're telling me I need to eat liver. No way. I don't want you to just like you know, run away and slam the door because there are, um, there are a variety of different options out there for encapsulated organ meat, encapsulated liver or blends, um, with like liver and other organs and they really are like an amazing tool for getting that food into our diets early on. It's, you know, basically eating a dehydrated whole food, uh, but it's in a pill form, so you don't need to taste it. So it, it just makes it as easy and convenient as possible. So um, don't run away from, from organ meat. There's lots, there's lots of tricks. And again, we, we really cover all of them in episode 347. 
Seafood includes fish, shellfish, and sea vegetables, and they're all frequent flyer foods. They're all nutrient-dense foods. There's a lot of, I think it's important to acknowledge, there's a lot of myths about seafood safety, uh, about fish being full of mercury or shellfish being bottom feeders, right, or radiation. And we covered all of those on episode 366, which was um, basically a seafood safety concern myth-busting episode, um, which I highly recommend our listeners going to to listen to. And Stacey, as you mentioned, we have done a, a whole pile of uh, shows about vegetables um, the, the ultimate goal, and again, I don't want to scare people, but the ultimate goal is to consume eight or more servings of vegetables a day. That doesn't meet now. That can be a gradual, I'm going to work on, you know, adding uh, a little bit, adding a salad to my dinner, right? Like a couple times a week, that can be a great starting place. Um, so we're not about, um, we recognize that we are human and that sometimes change is, much more sustainable when it's tackled iteratively. And so we want to give you permission to not go all in immediately if that's not the best way for you to actually um, make lasting positive change in your life. Um, But I think it's also important to understand that the ultimate goal is about eight servings a day or more. And between vegetables, mushrooms, and fruit, consuming about 30 different varieties a week. And again, we covered the 30 different varieties on episode 424. Um, but we've also tackled tons of different, like whether or not it's better to eat them raw or cooked or what counts and what doesn't count, what it looks like. I'm going to list all of our episode numbers. If you have a pen and pencil handy, um, we've talked about vegetables on episode 152, 286, 304, 335, and 373 are all veggie-focused shows talking about different aspects of it. We talked about mushrooms on episode 307 and 392. And fruit, we haven't actually, you know, this is one of the the topics that we're, we're going to be covering on upcoming episodes about the health benefits of different fruit. But we did talk about it in the context of why actually consuming more carbohydrates from whole food sources is really important. Um, and that insulin does a lot more in the body than just shuttle glucose into cells. And we covered that on episode 305. So that's another one that I would highly recommend going and having a listen to, to sort of uh, round out the understanding of why these foods are so important. There's a lot of episodes and references. And as you were talking about them, I was like, wow, we're like really old ladies. I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that we've come to over time is this definition of um, health healthy diet. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that. And I think one of the things that I love about this concept of Nutrivore is really taking all of this into account. What really nourishes and fuels our bodies to feel our best? What helps us live our best life in wellness? Um, But not just physically, but we also want you to be mindful of it emotionally. And I think one of the things that not giving yourself this definition and parameter of a prescriptive diet, so to speak, allows you to do is to really listen to your body's needs and then act upon them going forward. Not just how it makes you feel, but also, you know, working with medical professionals to make sure that you're getting the sufficiencies and all of that kind of stuff. And it's unfortunate we live in a world where food 
if it's not a whole food, you know, sourced from the ground, um, has been most likely altered by some sort of um, chemist somewhere to make it more palatable for you so that you think you want it and you actually don't, um, all that kind of stuff. And so while there is some um, opportunity for you to enjoy those things, it's also important to be mindful of um, what actually makes your body feel good. And um, the concept that Sarah's created about focusing on those nutrient-dense foods to give yourself that wiggle room um, for, you know, enjoying exceptions. And they might not make you feel your best. And I'm a big proponent of there's no sense in having guilt or shame and looking backwards and whatever. Like, just move forward and um, focus on making those choices as you feel good. But I do... I do also want to say before you kind of expand on the concept of Nutrivore that um, I learned the hard way as someone with multiple autoimmune diseases and food intolerances that if you continue to eat a food that your body is intolerant to, if you aren't kind of open to this idea of elimination diet, I know it might feel restrictive or whatever, um, but if you open yourself to the idea of actually eliminating that food, which might be causing your body harm, you're going to actually absorb the other nutrients more. And I think this was key for me um, as I learned about being uh, celiac and allergic to gluten. And I say allergic because my mother actually has an EpiPen uh, for when she has an anaphylactic reaction to gluten. Um But I didn't realize that we couldn't eat gluten early on, especially when I was a vegetarian. We ate a lot of genetically modified gluten and soy. And I do think that um, played a role into how my body processes later. And I was just consuming mass amounts of food and my body's cues were always telling me to eat more food. I never felt satiated um, very early on. And I strongly believe that that was because, and there is science to support, that because of how it was interacting in my gut health and all that kind of stuff, it was preventing the other nutrients that I was eating from being Mm -hmm. absorbed properly. And then my body was telling me, you need more of this food because we're not getting all of these nutritional deficiencies we have. And so you can, you can be having a perfect, you know, um, dietary choices and blah, blah, blah. But if your body is um, responding to one of those foods that you're eating in a negative way, it could be undoing everything. And it could be something like tomatoes. It doesn't, you know what I mean? It doesn't even have to be glutenic. There's so many things that cause food sensitivities. When we've talked about, you know, especially in the context of autoimmune disease, what the most common foods that can be undermining health are on this show uh, approximately a million times. I know that's that's a lot, but you know it's just it's a rough it's a rough guesstimate. Um, but I think that that that's one of the things that for me it's why the term nutrivor resonates with me so much because the idea behind it is um, the the main goal of meeting the body's physiological needs for nutrients, essential and non-essential nutrients from the foods that we eat. And that can be implemented in conjunction with other dietary priorities. So for example, if you have a food allergy or you're uh, gluten intolerant or you want to follow a Mediterranean diet or or a vegetarian diet or a paleo diet, um, the 
the idea behind Nutrivore is that you can apply it to other dietary frameworks and um, choose foods within that other dietary framework in order to meet your nutritional needs. Now, there are certain dietary frameworks in which it's going to be really tough because there are so many eliminated foods um, that staying within that framework and still meeting those dietary needs, you might end up hitting uh, sort of a mismatch, right? So for example, some of these um, nutrients that are really only um, only found in animal foods, that would be really hard to get nutrient sufficiency of those nutrients on a vegan diet, for example, um, on some of these nutrients that are abundant in plant foods, uh, especially fiber, which tends to be in foods that also have some carbohydrates, that would be really hard to get on a ketogenic diet. So there are certain diets that are um, would be much more challenging to make compatible with a Nutrivore approach. And it's actually one of the reasons why we've talked on the show before about limitations with those diets, recognizing that there are situations where they may be called for, where they may have therapeutic value, then sort of putting that to the side when they're, when they're used because of marketing claims for, um, health purposes, I think it's important to recognize that a diet cannot be a health promoting diet unless it actually supplies the body with the nutrients it needs. Um, again, going back to that concept of, uh, if a single system in the human body is missing a nutrient that it needs to function properly, then our, we can't experience full health because we've got a system in the body that's not able to do its job properly. And so, this is why the term Nutrivore is so important. It's because the, the goal of nutrient sufficiency, of getting all of our nutrients, is actually the most fundamental property of a health-promoting diet. Um, and it's why I like to think of the term Nutrivore, again, as a diet modifier as opposed to a diet itself. Uh, on a Nutrivore diet, if the idea is that the whole diet supplies these nutrients, there's no yes food and no food list. Yes, there's frequent flyers. There's the foods we know are going to be great for, for supporting um, overall health because they provide so many nutrients. They're going to help fill those nutrient gaps. There's other nutrient-dense foods like high-quality meat and dairy, like healthy fats like olive oil, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices tend to be great nutrient-dense foods, fermented foods. Um, properly prepared legumes could fit on this list. Eggs could fit on this list, especially um, pastured eggs, right? So there's other foods in there that are there's are going to be pretty nutrient dense, even if they're not quite at the frequent flyer status. Um, when we consume those foods in abundance, um, we we again we sort of buy ourselves wiggle room for something that maybe is you know uh, empty calorie. Um, but it's just delicious and we love it. And if we're not overtly sensitive to it, it's not harming us. If our whole diet is healthy, then we've, we've kind of, um, and, and meeting our nutrient needs, then we've, we've, we've made this, you know, we've made all these good choices to, to earn, uh, this suboptimal food. If that suboptimal food was the foundation of a diet, we would have tons of nutrient deficiencies and our health would suffer. But in the context of a Nutrivore diet, that suboptimal food can find a place. And when we approach it that way, then we're not, we're not stuck with only eat these foods, don't eat these foods, right? Most of the dietary strategies that 
are gaining popularity right now are elimination diets. And um, an elimination diet by itself, you might be cutting out foods that you're sensitive to, um, but they don't guarantee that you're actually meeting your body's nutritional needs. They need to be implemented if there's a good reason to implement them in conjunction with this Nutrivore approach um, because nutritional deficiencies do catch up with us eventually. Absolutely. And I just want to call out, you, you used the word earn at one point, which is a word I try to not associate with food, but how you Fair. were saying, how you were saying it, I know your intent, but I just want to like call, call it to surface is for us to be mindful of saying things like earning food because food is food. We don't, earn it or not earn it. But I, I love the idea of it having a place when we are nutritionally sufficient for optimal wellness and the other aspects of how we are choosing to eat. And beyond that, you know, we've talked about stress being a factor. The less stress you're living the life, your life, the more you're sleeping, the more you're getting out and doing movement, um, getting sunlight and fresh air, all of these things also improve your body's ability to handle stress and require less of these sort of um, finite, you know, monitorization of nutrients because your body isn't burning through them as quickly as it could. And this, this comes to light for me whenever I'm on vacation, I can totally eat um, more choice treat type foods than I would normally eat. Um, But I also am eating seafood more often because I'm like out and I'm on vacation and usually I'm someplace where seafood is delicious and readily available. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm less stressed and I'm getting more sleep and more sunlight and all of those kinds of things in that my body just kind of falls into um, being able to handle the stress of inflammatory foods in a different sort of way because now it has less stress of other things that I'm doing on a vacation type environment. So I know that's not really what we're all doing right now, but it is an example of how that stress really does um, get at you. So for sure. I think there's one, there's one final piece that I want to, to wrap up on. And that is for listeners who are fairly new to some of these foods, um, who think that, um, organ meat is disgusting. Well, we've already talked about capsules, so we've got, we've got, we've got a strategy already for that, but maybe don't like seafood or don't like vegetables or, you know, like are hearing these lists of nutrient dense foods that are, you know, foundational foods for a healthy diet and are feeling intimidated. And I kind of want to end on a really, what I think is like a super cool science and B, I, th- I think is a really positive way to view um, dietary adaptation and change. And it's that our, our taste preferences really come from two different places. So they come from a sort of adaptation of the sensitivity of our taste buds. Uh, so there's been a variety of studies that have looked at adaptation to low sugar diets, low salt diets, and low fat diets. And they've shown that over uh, the course of a few weeks, sort of four to 12, depending on the study, that the study participants will actually develop a preference for the healthier foods they've been eating, whether, however that's defined in the study. So the low sugar foods or the low salt foods or the low fat foods. And that is because their taste buds are becoming more sensitive. So they're able to 
uh, for example, in a low salt diet, they're able to taste smaller amounts of salt so that when they go back to the higher salt diet, it tastes way too salty to them. So that's an adaptation of taste buds. And that happens quite quickly. Our taste buds basically are um, like base, they're regrowing every few weeks. So that, that cycle is pretty quick. The other thing that goes into uh, food preference is familiarity, um, as well as positive association. And so when we're feeling good, or the food tastes good, or we have a positive social environment in which we're eating that food, that can actually be a really key driver of food preference. And why I think that's so helpful to keep in mind is that um, when we are being intentional to choose foods that we're maybe not as familiar with or that we don't like and we're sort of eating them um, because we know they're good for us, we can actually hack the system. So the more the more often we do it, the more persistent we are, that helps with the familiarity piece. But we can hack the system of the positive associations by creating an environment where we're consuming that food where um, something else fun is going on, right? So uh, playing a, a game at the dinner table that's really fun or, um, you know, doing some, having some other kind of special experience that goes along with consuming that food, we can actually start creating the positive associations with that food before the feeling good physically kicks in or before the food familiarity kicks in while we're waiting for our taste buds to turn over and adapt to the, the different you know, types of foods that we're consuming. And so there's actually this really great opportunity to transition to a place where these healthy foods that maybe now feel scary or intimidating in some way, we can get to a point where there are favorite foods. And I, I definitely have experienced this. Um, Stacy will tease me a million times over about how much I used to rant about how uh, kidney was disgusting and I wouldn't touch it. And it's, you know, over uh, the period of a summer, basically, of discovering a local farmer's market where there was lots of uh, kidney from local um, farmers to, to purchase, and that was like a really inexpensive food, I developed a really strong preference for kidney over that time. And um, like a really dramatic, like went from like, ew, it's gross, I'll never touch it to that's my favorite thing. That's that's what I'd rather have for breakfast than scrambled eggs. Um, and that's kind of an extreme example, but I, I, I bring it up not just to make fun of myself, but to help our listeners really understand that um, not liking a food now and knowing that it's good for you doesn't mean that you have to force yourself to eat it every single time for the rest of your life. My favorite things that I used to tell the kids is that your tongue sheds taste buds like a snake sheds its skin. And you just have to wait for that ne next cycle. Um, and early on, introducing my kids to a variety of foods and flavors, um, they eat anything now. Um, and I'm, I recognize that I'm lucky but um, we're actually also foster parents for our new listeners. And we had um, a foster son in our home for three months who was like, oh, I'm not going to, I don't eat this and I don't eat this and I don't eat this. And I was like, okay. And then we just make dinner and we put it on the table. We're all involved in the process. Um, and I don't point out like, oh, this has cauliflower or this has cabbage foods that he said he didn't like. And then he ate them because they were 
prepared well and they were delicious and it was intentional that I was introducing him to a food that way and he loved it. And then after I was like, hey, just FYI, that was cabbage and you liked it. So maybe it's just some cabbage you don't like. And you'd be like, oh, okay. So I think it's also in kind of how we frame things and, you know, finding delicious ways to prepare them is is key. Um, I'm not eating kidney, so you don't have to get there either, <laughs> listener. But um, there, there are certain certainly steps that we can take even as our kids are teenagers as this foster child was or even as adults my husband wouldn't eat seafood when I met him as an adult and he now loves clams are his like favorite food who knew so you know it's possible for sure but you just have to be open and willing and with that we ask you <laughs> to continue to be open and willing to hopefully continue to listen to our show if you're new here. Um, we have lots and lots of detailed information show notes and more on all these kinds of topics that we talked about, sustainability, um, you know, all all the things on the show. And so we're so happy that you are here with us and we hope that it's helped you meet us and that you want to hang around and stay. And for our regular listeners, thanks for joining us for this uh, 20,000 foot view. Thanks for listening. And of course, as always, we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. 